I became enormously curious about, well, what determines whether turning the spotlight inward to make sense of your problems, what determines whether that helps you or harms you? And if it's harming you, are there things you can do to bring this amazing capacity using our minds to help ourselves? How can we regain the beauty of that uh, uniquely human attribute? Hey, everyone. Hi. Linda and Drew Scott, and this is At Home, a show where we chat with artists, experts, leaders, dreamers, and doers on the impact that they're creating in the world. Through these conversations, we get to dive deeper into our relationships with ourselves, our communities, and our planet. In a sense, we're designing our home. From the inside out. As I'm sure you all know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month in the US and UK, and we've been having more discussions this month, although I feel like on at home, we've been talking about it a lot. It's just been top of mind for us. Mental health is something we've been very open about and, and uh, really interested in exploring more conversations with people so that it becomes more the norm. Learning about it for ourselves as well. Yeah. And regardless of our experience with mental illness, all of us face challenges in life that can impact our general mental well-being for a short period or a long period. Mm-hmm. And as we pass the one year mark of this pandemic, and extensive periods of isolation, we can all take this opportunity to remember to check in on friends, family, colleagues, and ourselves to see how we're doing. Actually, I do appreciate that you check in with me a lot more too. I think that actually helps me look internally to figure out if there's anything that I haven't been addressing. Mm-hmm. You've checked in with me more, so thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, this month on At Home, we've been looking at ways to make important things a little bit easier. Today, we chat with Ethan Cross. He is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. Ethan is an award-winning professor in the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and its Ross School of Business. He is the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. Just like the coolest-sounding laboratory ever, he has participated in policy discussion at the White House and has been interviewed about his research on so many channels, CBS Evening News, Good Morning America, Anderson Cooper Full Circle, and NPR's Morning Edition. His research has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, the New England Journal of Medicine, and Science. Guys, let me just say, (laughs) this man knows his stuff. Ethan's research examines how people can control their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors to improve their lives. And in our conversation today, we talk about Ethan's first book just released this year called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. I was very blown away by all the things that he brought up and the things that he was saying and simple ways that we can check in with ourselves. You know what? Whenever we have guests like this, my I feel like my brain is actually being tickled. <laughs> yeah, it tickles and it grows. I can feel it growing. And by the way, if anybody is listening to this episode with kids, there is some explicit language, maybe other words for poop. So just keep that in mind. This is Ethan Cross. Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. I mean, what are they going to do next? They're going to start a country singing career. I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying. Your Google Nest doorbell? I said our. He said my. Everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices like my lights, my locks. <laughs> my security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. And I like to say, hey, Google, to get started. Listen, I said ours. I'm all about ours, not <laughs> mine. Help protect what matters most with all this plus 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. We do appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. It's uh, exciting to have you here and, you know, just strategically displace us right here so everyone can see. It's a good looking book cover. I love it. I was going to say sexy book cover. It's it's a great looking book cover. Um, I'm, I'm I think, not allowed to use that term in my profession. Oh, yeah, I, I made it. We I said agree. it. There, we, we said, said it for me. So for this month of May, we're partnering with Greg McEwen, who put us in touch with you and your team. Mm-hmm. And we're just so excited to have this all work together because it, it does all play into how can we simplify our lives 
Mm-hmm. Totally. And and the connection, you know, even beyond happiness and wellness and flourishing, which are topics near and dear to my heart and figure prominently into the book, um, actually our spaces, when you use the word home, home, home includes like people. But one of the really cool things about this area of work is, is we've learned that how you interact with your physical spaces has effects on what's happening in between your two years. And, and that's really really interesting and exciting to me. And so let's dig in a little bit first. Are, are you from Michigan? No, I'm from, I'm from a, a small town called Brooklyn, New York. Oh, um, never heard. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Worked really hard. Like my, you know, I worked super hard as a kid to leave Brooklyn and never come back. And then something funny happened. Once I left, it became the coolest place in the universe. So, uh, so that because you left. a little bit. Yeah. It, well, you know, <laughs> I clarify when I'm giving that line to my students, like I was not the key factor that, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, tell us about your, your journey and also early on, just want to understand what life was like for you that led you to what you do now. Well, you know, the, the, the short version of the story was, um, so I was raised in, in a household with a somewhat unconventional dad who, um, you know, was a chain smoker, but also a meditator, often at the same time. And from the time I was a little kid, he used to encourage me to to introspect, to go inside when bad things happen. So something's bothering you, little guy, go inside, find the solution to the problem. And, you know, I didn't know any different growing up. He was my dad. I idolized him and, and I followed his instructions. And so you know, whenever life threw some curveballs, whether it be my mom telling me to clean up when I didn't want to, or not getting dessert, or getting rejected by a girl I asked out in high school, or maybe use the plural girls, um, <laughs> you know, I would do that. I would, I, I turn attention inward. I try to make sense of the situation, very rationally come up with a solution for how to proceed. And that served me really well. And I, I'd move on. I wouldn't really get stuck. And then I got to, to college and I took my first class on psychology and about halfway through the semester, we got to the topic of introspection. And I'm thinking, you know, in my head, I did the equivalent of roll up my sleeves and like, you know, crack my knuckles. Like I got this, I've been doing it forever. And what I learned surprisingly uh, at that time was that a lot of people do exactly what my dad told me to do, but it doesn't serve them well. When bad things happen, they try to sort out the situation. They turn their attention and were to make sense of the problem, but they end up spinning instead. They ruminate, they worry, they catastrophize. Oh my God, what if, what if this happens? What if that? Uh, they experience what I call chatter, which is getting stuck in these negative thought loops, which have really severe consequences for, for our lives. They make it hard to think, think well at work. They can create friction or relationships, undermine our health. And so, uh, so a spark got lit in my head. Um, I became enormously curious about, well, what determines whether turning the spotlight inward to make sense of your problems, what determines whether that helps you or harms you? And if it's harming you, are there things you can do to bring this amazing capacity using our minds to help ourselves? How can we regain the beauty of that uh, uniquely human attribute? And so I went to graduate school to study that, um, and I have been studying it ever since. When when your dad was teaching you as a kid, did you have did you have those voices as well? But you learned to put them aside. How did you be able to analyze um, without getting stuck in that chatter? Well, you know, so so one thing to keep in mind is that you know the voice inside our head isn't always a naysayer or a bad. It can be good or bad. So what we're really talking about when we talk about the inner voice, the voice in our head, we're talking about using language silently. Now, language is an amazing, amazing tool, right? We use it to communicate with others. We use it to communicate with ourselves. Uh, We can use language or this voice in our head to do things like, you know, before I have a big presentation, I'll I'll simulate in my head what I'm going to say. I'll rehearse it. Have you ever done this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so I, I do that. Then I actually hear the obnoxious person asked me a question in the audience. And then I actually even simulated further by imagining how I would, what I would say to them. Interestingly, in my head, what I say to them is never what I say to their face. Right. Um, I call but, that daytime fantasies. Yes. Where I say all those things I would never really say in real life. Yeah. But, uh, 
Some, I have some colleagues who say those things out loud. That's probably not a good thing. <laughs> but, but that's your inner voice. Like, that's a superpower. That's very different from other animals. You're simulating, you're planning, right? That's the, the, the voice of, I would argue, wisdom and productivity. Um, sometimes, though, that voice can morph into doubt. Oh, my God, what if this happens? How am I going to management? Or you're such a shit. And... And what I like to tell people is when that starts happening, when that kind of chatter starts brewing, the challenge is not to just silence your inner voice. Lots of people ask me, like, how can I silence my inner voice? Mm -hmm. Not what you want to do. You want to turn the volume down on the pervasive self-doubt, the ruminations, and free up this tool that you have to do ama the amazing things that it does for you, help you create, help you problem solve, help you innovate. So it's mm. not about silencing the inner voice. It's about it's about controlling it. It's about harnessing it. Tell us about the emotional and self-control lab and um, how we can be your subjects of study. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have questions for you because I oh, think perfect. I think I think you are in a certain sense um, helping people with their inner voice. And I'm wondering if you've seen signs of this in your in your different interactions with folks as you've as you've worked with people on their properties, so one of the things that we've learned about managing this voice and so I'm actually not answering the question about the self control level, but we'll we'll come back to it. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's because fine. I, I want to hear about about this from you. So there are lots of different tools that exist for managing this voice in your head. There's no single magic pill, right? Lots of different things you could do, often in combinations things you could do on your own, ways of talking to other people that can be really helpful or harmful. We should probably talk about that at some point. Mm -hmm. um, but also ways of interacting with your physical spaces. And that's where that's where the yes. two of you come, in, come into play. So one of the things we know from lots and lots of studies is that when people are stressed out, when they're ruminating, when they're anxious, they start, they start trying to create order in their environment around them. I do this myself and it, it's a little freaky because I, I'm a very clean individual, but in terms of order, which I think is different, you know, I'm usually like a free spirit. My wife made me clean up before we spoke today uh, in the office, but usually there are stacks of books, there are papers all over the place, crayons for my kids, and I'm fine with it. It doesn't affect me. But when I'm stressed, I do something out of character. I start organizing. I create piles, I put things away, I go to the kitchen, I wash all the dishes, I scrub down the counters. And it's really consistent to the point that I, I joke, when I was writing this book, sometimes I, I felt like my wife wanted me to, was hoping for a little chatter episode because the, the house- You'll clean the more. house up. I clean but the is house. That, is that, so doing that though, because what I feel whenever I've done that is it's sort of something like doing the dishes, cleaning your office, it's giving you these little wins and these little wins give you these small doses of some sort of chemical reaction that make you feel like you're accomplishing what you want to accomplish. Is it like the psychology that goes with um, a winning streak? Like when a team is on a winning streak? Well, there's, there's part of that, that you're, you're accomplishing small tasks and get, that gives you a sense of satisfaction. That's certainly a piece of it. But there's another piece of it, which is it's, it's giving you a sense of control because mm. you're in control of things. You're creating order. Mm. And one of the things we know about chatter is that when your chatter is brewing, you don't feel like you're in control at all. Like mm -hmm. your thoughts are, are, are managing you. And mm -hmm. so uh, there's actually a great quote uh, from uh, the tennis player, Rafael Nadal, who, uh, do, do you ever watch Nadal? Have, are you mm -hmm. tennis fans? Mm -hmm. So yeah, he's yeah. known for doing these wacky, wacky rituals before he plays. He like, he walks onto the court, always holding one tennis racket, and his, you know, uh, his warm-up jacket is always on the same way. And then he puts his rackets down. He bounces on both feet. He picks his shorts out of his butt before every serve and like tugs <laughs> on his earlobe three times. I mean, it's really you remarkable. Can be a tennis player. Yeah, <laughs> there, well, there, I'm, I'm not getting involved. And so um, what he's been asked about this, and he says, you know, the hardest thing I struggle to do on the tennis court is battle the voices in my head. That on its own, I think, is remarkable because he's playing against players who are like bred to beat this guy because he's mm -hmm. so good and has been for so long. Mm -hmm. But it's not the other players that that's not his biggest opponent. It's it's his mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And his answer is, I create order around me because it provides me the order I seek in my head. And the science bears that out. Like you could compensate 
for the lack of order you're feeling by creating order around you. And so, so that connects, I think, to a lot of when I when I've you know watched what you do, I think it in some ways connects to that. And I'm curious, have you seen like a transformational effect on on people that you've worked with when? Yeah. Oh, one hundred percent. You know, you know, we've done in total between, you know, for the shows, we've done about 460 renovations for families. Um, and then on top of that, you know, clients we worked with outside the shows. And that's probably the biggest thing that we, we try to say to them too. Like if you don't have, if your home is not the way you've always wanted it to be, whether it's the function or the style, um, you know, a space for the kids to have their own area and the adults to have their own area, whatever it is, it's important to you if you don't have that you're going to have that anxious feeling at home. You're never going to feel settled and relaxed. And so 100%, when we reveal spaces to families, you see it's almost like that ton of bricks off their shoulder. You see them physically relax and smile. And I I think a a direct um, result of you physically giving them a space to thrive and uh, a space for their family to grow in, it shows because, you know, it's the exact same house. It's just positioned differently or you guys open it up and you provide them with intentional space to focus on their craft, for example, or intentional space for family gatherings. And I think that definitely translate into an emotional um, and mental mm-hmm. space. Yeah. I find yeah. it so fascinating because in, in doing a lot of the research from this book, for this book, I spoke to like lots of different people, CEOs, you know, uh, people who worked in restaurants, Starbucks employees, everything in between, right? And what's interesting is that a lot of people seem to stumble on tools that help them. And they use mm-hmm. these things without even knowing like why it makes them feel better or why it helps them control their chatter. And the physical spaces were, was one of those tools that like people would do things in those spaces or seek out certain kinds of experiences that made them Mm -hmm. feel better without knowing why, you know, having seen some of the reactions that folks have, I think one emotion that often I see characterizing people is this sense of awe, Mm. like, Oh my God! I cannot contemplate what has just happened. I mean, yeah. is that fair? Mm-hmm. Fair to say yeah. that? And that's really—that's a gift you are giving to other people. And I'm not just saying this to make you feel good. The science suggests that it is a gift, and mm-hmm. and the reason for that is what we've learned relatively recently is that when you experience a sense of awe, which it's an emotion we experience when when we're in the presence of something vast that we just can't explain. Like we don't have a a software to make sense of this. I I last experienced awe when I saw uh, the Mars rover land. Mm. Honestly, I've just wrapped my head around how it's possible for us to fly in planes. When I go beyond that to like interplanetary travel, I mean, this is just, it's remarkable to me that we like, it fills me with a sense of awe. And Mm. one of the things we know is that when you experience the sense of awe, it leads to something that we call shrinking of the self. So you and your concerns, you feel a whole lot smaller when you're in the, when you're contemplating or in the presence of something indescribable. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you're if you're giving people these awe-inspiring spaces, that's a way of helping people manage their mind from from the outside in, and and it's a remarkable thing. Astronauts talk about it a lot when. Um, and they describe it as like the overview effect when they see earth for the first time from outer space, you know, Mm. they realize or they see the bigger picture and are just in awe of, you know, this world that we live in. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. We forgot to come back to talking about emotional and self-control lab. Oh, right. So, so what we do in the emotion self-control lab is a lots of different kinds of research, uh, ranging from brain imaging experiments to studying people in the lab, bringing people into the lab and creating like productions to induce emotion and then testing out ideas about what can help people when they're really under stress mm-hmm. to um, tracking people over time, like asking them questions on their smartphones as they live their life. And, and fundamentally, we, we, we try to address two big picture questions. First, can we, can we shed light on how people can can regulate themselves, can align their thoughts, feelings, or behaviors with their goals. We want to understand how that works in a very basic mechanistic sense. Um, Then the second question is, how can we use our knowledge of science to help people in some consequential way? 
So how can we use what we're learning about self and emotion control to improve people's lives? And, um, and all of the work addresses those two questions uh, in one way or another. How do we sign up? <laughs> sign up. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. Help protect what matters most with 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. You said that very professionally. I try. (laughs) Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help you make your home smarter and safer. I would love to learn more of your tools for how we can talk to people that we work with or even just family. I mean, I think it would be amazing for us to understand. And ourselves. And ourselves. How we talk to ourselves. Let's, if we shift from talking about our environments to like how we interact with other people, Mm -hmm. other people can be an amazing um, source of, of, of chatter relief or they can make it worse. And so like when something's bugging you, we often hear, get it out express it, and that's going to make you feel better because you get it off your chest. Uh, That's not how the mind works. And what we've learned over lots and lots of um, experiments and over time is that uh, when you just vent to someone about what's bothering you, that can make the person you're talking to, you feel closer and more connected to that person. So it's really comforting for me to know now that we're buddies, I can call one of you up and just let you know about what's really bugging me about the construction on the house. I actually do have some questions maybe after. <laughs> I'm oh, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I, I can, I, it, it's great to know you're a shoulder to lean on. So when I vent to you and you allow me to do that by asking me questions, that strengthens our bond. And that's a good thing. But if all that happens in the conversation is you just keep on asking me, oh, really, Ethan? The builder said that, and then that happened. Oh my God, you must have felt awful. If that's all we do, it's also it's like throwing logs on a fire because mm-hmm. you're just keeping me thinking in a very zoomed in way about what's bothering me and how awful it is. So mm-hmm. I end up then leaving that conversation just as pissed off or anxious okay. as when I started. So the best kinds of conversations about stress and chatter are ones that actually do two things you do want to empathically connect with the person you're talking to, learn about their feelings, what happened to them. But at a certain point in the conversation, you want to start nudging them to go broader, to broaden their perspective. All right, well, let's look at the big picture. This is a huge project. We've got lots of victories here. We can deal with this, right? So you want to, when we're experiencing chatter, we get so fixated on the Mm -hmm. one door handle that isn't just right you know, and we mm-hmm. can't think of anything else. But when we step back and look at the bigger picture, we can often think about alternative ways of making sense of this that lead us to feel better. So in your role as a chatter advisor to your clients, being mindful of this, I think, could be really, really helpful, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you don't you can still connect with them, but mm-hmm. try to nudge them to go broader. Um, and it's something that you can look for on the opposite. And when you're experiencing chatter, mm-hmm. like who do you talk to? There are many people in my life who I'm very close with. I love dearly. They love me. They have to, like we're DNA linked. Mm-hmm. I don't talk, I don't talk to them about my chatter because they just make it worse. So mm-hmm. I have like three people, I, 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 three buddies I talk to about personal issues, four or five for professional. And that's like my board of advisors. Like I seek mm-hmm. them out and it's really helpful. So I like that the, actually a personal board of advisors. I think that that's such an important thing or a way to look at it. Um, I mean, at least for someone with how I think. Yeah, totally. And I think it's, um, we often expect all of our closest friends and family to be our everything, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. not fair for that relationship um, to lay all your problems on someone. And it's not healthy either uh, for yourself, because as you said, it's not productive. It's just like a negative, negative loop. That's right. And, And actually, one of the things that chatter can do to harm us is when you you, you talk about your problems and if all you're doing is ruminating about them with someone else, we call that co-rumination. That can end up just pushing those other people away because there's only mm. so much we can listen to at any given yeah. moment in time before we start to fray. So, so that's, one, um, that's one important piece when it comes to other people. There's one other thing that's relevant here that I think, I guess my guess is you may do this for one another and others. You could help other people 
invisibly. We call this invisible support. And, and it's another really important piece of the people equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what invisible support is, is it's helping people when they're not, without them knowing mm-hmm. that you're helping them. Um, one of the things we know is that if you volunteer to offer support to someone and they haven't asked for it, that can sometimes blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like the example I like to use is like, if I, if my oldest daughter is, you know, she's, she's struggling with a homework assignment and, uh, I come over, I'm like, professor, I do this stuff for a living. Like I can help. Can I help? Let me show you how to do this. Like, did I ask you for help? You don't think I know how to do this? And then, and then it's like, mom, you know, and then, then it's all over. I come back to this <laughs> office and I just, I, I live here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, the reason that happens is because by trying to be helpful, I threatened her sense of, of agency and autonomy, mm-hmm. her sense that mm. she can do things on her own. And I, I'm picking on my older daughter. She's great. She's wonderful, independent. So Maya, <laughs> you know, um, I She love will you. be listening, you know. Oh, no, I know. I know. I, I think <laughs> I, I, my voice is now saying as I'm talking, I can do both at once, that I'm in deep trouble at dinner tonight. <laughs> deep, deep trouble. Um, so what do you do in those situations? You help people without them knowing. So if my wife is really stressed out about work and other stuff, I'll go pick up the dry cleaning and, and take care of dinner without being asked, right? I'll do things to make her her daily experience just a little bit easier. If a student of mine is really struggling with their writing, rather than say, hey, why don't you go get writing support? I'll be like, hey, you know, to, to my whole lab, I'll, I'll make an announcement. There's, a, there's an interesting workshop on campus. Why don't we all go? I'm getting them the information without them knowing that. And that, that can be that like, Invisible support makes couples happier and mm. um, it can be also another way of helping people if they mm. don't explicitly ask you for advice. Mm. So what, what can you do besides like this, you know, order and awe and finding someone to talk to? I, I was observing the two of you, by the way. I don't want you to feel too self-conscious here, but um, you were doing something very good. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm perpetuating the stereotype here, right? The psychologist <laughs> analyze you. But but at, for people who are listening and may not be watching, uh, you, you held each other's hand at, at one point during the conversation. And, and actually, before we leave the other tools, one thing I write about in the book is the power of affectionate touch. Mm-hmm. When touch is, uh, when, when it is welcome, and that's an important caveat now, like right. you've got, you know, you, you don't mm-hmm. want to be, grabbing everyone and you know there you go not the right time for the touch (laughs) touch touch is a powerful tool i mean it's the one of the most primitive ways that we regulate ourselves like a baby comes out of the womb Mm -hmm. what do we do with the baby yeah into skin talk we touch it we touch our kids always appropriately i'm not no creepy touches right but we're we're hugging them we're consoling them we hug one another And, and research shows that Simple affectionate embraces actually release stress-fighting chemicals that can help us manage chatter. They also remind ourselves like, hey, there's someone here who cares about me and that can be useful too. So, but let's say you don't have like someone else to touch um, in an appropriate way. What can you do? Um, One thing that I do is I try to give myself advice like I'm talking to someone else and I use language to help me do it. And what I mean by that is I'll try to coach myself through a problem using my own name silently. Mm. All right, Ethan, what are you going to do? This may sound kind of hokey. There are sitcoms that make fun of people who do this. Mm. Um, But what we've learned through lots and lots of studies is is this linguistic shift, we call this distanced self-talk, can be really helpful for allowing people to manage stressful situations and, and reason more wisely and objectively about it. Uh, if you think about it, we're really good at giving advice to uh, at other people as opposed to mm-hmm. taking our own advice. I was going to yep. bring that up next, but <laughs> yes. yes, I totally agree. Right? Like, if, if, like how often does someone come to you with a problem, they're spinning, chatter, they present it to you, I'm like, come on, silly, just do this. Not a big deal. <laughs> Move on. But when you're in the situation, not so easy to do it. What we've learned about human beings, I think this is fascinating, is Mm -hmm. we've stumbled on this tool, like this linguistic shift. When you use your name, it helps you give yourself advice like you were another person. Think about when do we use names? 
when we, when we think about other people, right. talk right. to other people. So, so it's like a psychological jujitsu move. Mm-hmm. When you use your name to think about yourself, it automatically shifts your perspective and it makes it much easier for you to, um, to advise yourself in that situation mm-hmm. in, a, yeah. in an objective, rational way. And so I, I, I use this tool all the time. Mm. That, that's so cool too, because we are often, I feel, I find for myself, I am often kinder to other people than I am to myself. You know, yeah. I will forgive other people for anything, but when it comes to like me making a mistake, you know, I will dwell on it for, you know, for days. Yes. One way to think about how to deal with that, and you're not alone there, by the way, that's very mm-hmm. normal. We, we call it the reverse golden rule. So the, mm. the golden rule, the regular one, is treat other people like you would want to be treated. So what would happen if you flipped it? Treat yourself like you treat other people. Mm. And that mm. can be, I think, a very powerful reminder of, of exactly what you're, you're describing, which I know I experienced too. I have a, a friend who was the one that was always giving relationship advice. And the advice they were giving was really good. It was always, it made sense. And I thought it was hilarious that they were the one that was always in the worst relationships I'd ever seen. Totally. So it, it's so fascinating. Uh, yeah. So don't, don't hold it against them. Like, and you hear that all the time. You see this with, you know, physicians who are doling out great advice about health and then they're dying young of heart attacks. And, you know, I mean, yeah. You see this across industries. This is a truism, I think, of a human condition. When we have some psychological distance from our from the experience, it's a whole lot easier for us to be objective about the situation. The the good news is that we've got tools we can mm-hmm. use to give us some mental space to step back. And um, and you know, part of part of my reason for writing this book was to is to help people start thinking about how do you, how can you be a lot more deliberate about using mm. these tools in your life? Some people do this stuff, like I was saying before, without even knowing it. Um, you know, Jennifer Lawrence did an interview with the New York Times several years ago, and she got really flustered during the interview and she paused and she said, okay, stop, Jennifer, get mm. yourself together. You can do this. Mm. Like, who told her to do that? LeBron James did this during an ESPN event when he was trying to figure out, does he stay with the Cleveland Cavs or go to another team? LeBron James has got to do what is best for LeBron James. You you can't make an emotional decision. Like, Mm. who told him to do that? I mean, the the list goes on of people spontaneously doing this. And, And the neat thing, I think, about the science is we can give people these tools so that they don't have to wait to just stumble mm-hmm. on these techniques in their life. They can have a tool belt like, like yours and, and really be really skilled at when to use these mm-hmm. things. Can you tell me, though, um, what sort of tools, uh, examples of tools that parents could use with their children to sort of help prevent negative thoughts about themselves? So a lot of these tools um, can be useful for kids. Like the, take the tool I just described, distant self-talk. We've done studies which show that if a kid's really struggling, uh, ask them to, you know, well, well, um, you know, what do you think Danny should do? You know, use Dan, my youngest daughter, use Danny's name as, as to coach yourself through a problem. You can even supercharge this strategy by doing something we call the Batman effect. So tell your kid to imagine they're a superhero, Batman, Wonder Woman, and then, all right, you're Batman. Now use your name, Batman, to coach yourself through this problem. Mm. You're struggling with your homework. You don't want to do it. What would Batman do here? Come on, Batman, you could do it. Like, what do we know about superheroes? They're resilient. They don't, mm. they don't get flustered, right? Thanos comes, blows up half the <laughs> universe, no problem. We keep doing, we keep working. Right. And so there's research which shows that a linguistic shift like that can be helpful. Um, another tool that works for kids and adults we haven't talked about, uh, mental time travel or in in more technical terms, we call temporal distancing. Let's say you're really, really stressed out about something like the pandemic and and how it's affecting you. Jump in the mental time travel machine. Think about how are you gonna feel about this acute stressor six months from now when you're vaccinated and everyone else is and you're sitting on a beach sipping pina coladas and hanging out with your friends. And what that does, engaging in that mental time travel, that makes it clear that as awful as what you're experiencing is right now, it's temporary. It will eventually pass. That gives us hope. And we know that hope is a really powerful bomb for chatter. Mm. 
And, you know, really easy to do these kinds of things. So for kids, you know, you can ask them. So you, you got into a fight with, with, with someone on the schoolyard. So, how, you know, think about how you're going to feel about this next week, right? We all have these experiences of our, our emotions tend to fade. They, 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 they come down at a certain point. So just mm-hmm. it can be easy to forget that when we're mm-hmm. mired in chatter. But, but when we do remind ourselves of that, of the instability of these negative experiences, that can make us feel really good. So, so those are two examples of, of things you can do with kids. Yeah. Mm. Two things. One, can we talk about the power of nature and how, and how that plays a role in our chatter? What nature does, it's almost like putting the computer on sleep mode, letting mm. it recharge. Because when you walk around a safe, natural space, and, and I do feel um, obliged to say safe because where I grew up in Brooklyn, nature, uh, many of the green spaces were synonymous with where you got mugged, unfortunately, mm. because people would hide in bushes and come get you. But, mm. um, you know, in places where that, that, that's not an issue, like a, a wonderful park or a backyard, our attention is very gently drawn to the natural beauty around us. Mm-hmm. And we're not thinking real hard about it. We're just kind of taking it in. And when we do that, that just, it, it, it lets this attention that we have, it lets it bubble up and restore and, and gives us a lot more energy to, to deal with our problems once we're done. And so, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we, put, we put a lot, a hefty budget in our home into, into the green spaces around it. Right. And now we're very deliberate about that because of this science. The, the second question I had is how do you how do we find balance between as you said we we don't want to silence the chatter in that inner voice because it does help us recognize you know where are the sticky points but how do we balance between um, just uh, what did you call it temporal temporal shift. distancing yeah just dis, temporal distancing how do we find a balance between that and like actually dealing with the problem at hand. So you never want to like suppress the problem or pretend mm-hmm. it doesn't exist. Uh, a lot of these distancing tools that that I talk about in the book and that we're talking about now, you could think of them as turning the temperature down on the problem. So you're still thinking about the issue. When mm-hmm. we, in our studies, when people distance themselves in a variety of ways, it's not like they're doing cartwheels and like, you know, sipping warm cups of tea with gummy bears all around. And like, life is amazing right now. Like we're not getting those automatic shifts, right? We're not, what we're doing is we're turning the temperature down on a really intense negative experience, making it easier for people to then engage with that experience Mm. in a more effective, rational way. Do you ever have moments, do you still have moments where you're like, screw all of that. I just want to freak out and I want to have these negative thoughts and I want to dwell in it for a minute. Yes, I'm a human being, of course. Um, uh, you know, I will say this. So I can experience chatter at times. I, the truth is I was always, like you, I, I think, very good at managing chatter if it came up and not experiencing it. That changed when I had kids and, you know, like mm. other kinds of concerns came to the fore about their well-being and, and I experienced chatter more. Um, and I tell the story in a book about how I got a really threatening letter once and, and that really spiked chatter. So I've, I've experienced it. Um, I've gotten really good at, at using these tools to nip the chatter in the bud when it happens. But, but certainly, yeah, I mean, sometimes it can take over and, and, and it can be work to, to, uh, to bring it down. So I'll often use combinations of different strategies. I'll do the distance self-talk, the temporal distancing. I'll call a couple of chatter advisors mm-hmm. and then I'll oscillate it through it a few times before I come back to who You know what would be amazing? Mm-hmm. Have you ever had it where one of your, you have two daughters, right? Yeah. One of your kids are like, father, have <laughs> you tried da-da-da-da? And they start giving you your own tools. <laughs> yes, I, I am waiting for that moment. Uh, <laughs> And I can tell you that there is an occupational hazard of trying to give the tools to kids. Um, you know, when, when you're the dad and that doesn't always work out. No. Well. I'm sure it backfires sometimes. Good to know. Yeah. What about yeah. social media? You mentioned that at the beginning, uh, um, very briefly. How does that affect our, I guess, our, our chatter? Mm-hmm. Here's how I think about social media. We've been studying this for probably 15 years now. Social media, it's a new environment. And environments aren't good or bad. It's how we engage with those environments that determine how they affect us. So if we think about 
the offline world, like the environment we're used, most used to interacting in, you can go to good neighborhoods and have conversations with people who are going to help you grow. And that's great. It'll improve your well-being. But if you go to the wrong neighborhoods and hang out with the wrong people and do the wrong things, it can really get you in trouble. Mm. Lessons, we, we are often taught from a very young age through our parents, our, our, our friends, our culture. Our culture gives us lessons about how to navigate the world to make it work for us, right? Like that's what socialization is. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about social media is because it's so new, we haven't had any time to build that collective knowledge about right. how to interact with this space in ways that are helpful versus harmful. So, so people are just kind of stumbling through it, learning as they go and sometimes getting in trouble. And so on the one hand, we, we now know that there are certain things on social media that can really undermine people's well-being. Just releasing negative emotions without you know, an unfiltered release like that can get people into lots of trouble, contribute to things like cyberbullying and trolling, which powerfully undermine well-being. Um, uh, we also know that just passively scrolling through our, our news feeds, taking in, you know, the wonderful homes and lives of other people. Like if that's all we're looking at over and over and over again, and we're reminded of how ordinary our own experience is, mm-hmm. like it's what happens is very clear. You're comparing yourselves to others. You begin yeah. to feel envy and worse about your own life. And so that can contribute to chatter. So there are harmful ways of interacting with those spaces, but but there are also positive ways. Like social media gives you access to tons of people who can give you support, who mm. can congratulate you on victories or help you when you're down. And, and it can provide a platform for us helping other people. So so it's about figuring out how to strategically navigate those spaces that um, is what I think matters. I think uh, that's uh, the hard thing too, is if you're just going on there to see, oh, everyone else's life looks perfect and mine is ordinary. Nobody's life is perfect. They're just putting their best foot forward on social media to make it look like it is. So I do appreciate when people actually open up. Our sister-in-law does this quite a bit where she'll post about what she's truly feeling. And she she's a model and, and she posts a lot of amazing, beautiful photos but she'll also post the real life stuff, which really shows that she's human like everyone else. Yeah, I think that's yeah. very, very important. And the other thing is, you know, this isn't about blame in terms of putting your best self out there. Like we do this all the time. Like, mm. you know, I, I knew I was talking to you today. Like I shaved, I combed my hair. Well, like I you. might not do that <laughs> if I didn't leave the house. I'd be dressed differently, perhaps. Like mm. we're always curating how we present ourselves to right. others. That's part of what we do as a species. How do you figure out that balance or, or is there a struggle for some people? Um, again, does you know mental illness play a factor into this as well? Where do we learn to filter and where should we filter with what we're processing in our heads? So there are a couple of, uh, a couple of answers to that question. Um, you know, one thing I want to point out is, uh, and this is, this is interesting. So I, I often teach a class here on the science of self-control to undergrads at, at the University of Michigan. And um, sometimes we talk about like, what if you just experience a thought that's a temptation? Like, oh, you know, I want to eat this cookie uh, after eight o'clock or I want to do something that's bad, uh, but you don't act on it. Like, you know, does that count as a self-control failure? And some students think that if you have the thought and it's a bad thought, you've already failed at controlling yourself. My response to them is, you're setting a really high bar for success if you want to be able to control the thoughts that pop up into your head at any mm. given moment. Yeah, time. yeah. We don't have control over the thoughts that pop up into our head. What we do have control over is how we engage with those thoughts, right? So you don't, you can think about robbing a bank, but you don't have to do it. You can experience a thought that might leads you to feel anxious if you elaborate on it further, but you don't have to do that. You could diffuse it in other ways. And I think that's an important distinction for people to, 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 to consider because a lot of people do think that if the thought occurs, they're already guilty. There's, there's a great study about um, uh, infidelity, actually, and how there are cultural differences on this dimension. Like some cultures think that if you experience a thought about being unfaithful to your partner, you're guilty 
Like, mm. you know, mm-hmm. go to confession, you're in big trouble. For other cultures, though, it's only if you act on that thought that, that you get in trouble. So mm-hmm. uh, important food for thought. In terms of um, like filtering, well, I think here you want to take into account, it's not a simple answer to that question. And you want to take into account, um, you know, who the person you're interacting is and, and what the context is like. Some people are, it's easier to be totally transparent about what you think about a given issue. And you don't have to dress it up in any way. I think in general, you know, being truthful is, is a really good thing. Um, uh, you know, if you could be truthful without being hurtful, I think that's the, mm-hmm. the key. If truthfulness is going to arouse some hurt, I think you then have some questions to ponder. Like mm-hmm. number one, is there a way of me conveying this information without hurting the other person? Like it's right. one thing to call, say like, you know, I don't know if I agree with that suggestion. Um, I might I might think we do it this way. Like, that's just stupid. Are you dumb? I mean, like, you know, very yeah. same. Like, right? exactly. So how you deliver the information. Well, yeah. well you know, the, the other thing that I think is important here is there, there's lots of research on how do you get people to talk about contentious issues or, you know, couples or groups mm-hmm. or, or talk about things that could be hurtful. And if you could make clear from the outset that like we're on the same team, we want the same thing. If our right. big picture goals are right. same, it makes it a whole lot easier than to be honest and authentic about how we feel. So if like I have a student who's really struggling with, with something, a project, an experiment, I'm like, look, um, I care about you and we're on the same team. All I want is for you to be successful. Here's what you need to do to, to do that because this is not it and here's how we can improve it. Wrapping it up like that, I think it makes it much, much easier to have honest communications than when you just mm-hmm. say, there's a piece of shit. And, you know, I, I yeah. shouldn't have said that. Sorry. Honestly, we could literally chat for hours. I, I'm so fascinated by what you do and how you inspire people. And all so. the science and research behind it. Um, yeah. It was such an easy to understand book, even with all the science. Or you illustrate the science with so many examples. And again, it's for something that I've always really loved is that idea of there's so much internally that can affect us externally. And so chatter. And the other way around. And the other way around. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. After every conversation, we wrap up with a fun speed round. If you're game. I'm game. What meal makes you feel most at home and who cooked it? Eggplant Parmesan. Me. Oh, you're a cook. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the cook in the house. And, you know, we've got a great system. My wife and I, she does not like cooking. She does other things. I love cooking. It's my release. Mm-hmm. And that's my favorite dish. Sounds delicious. What's your perfect Sunday morning at home? Going to the farmer's market, picking up some of my favorite goodies, coming back, having breakfast with my kids and and wife. What's a moment that you can recall where you saw one of your children implementing your habits, your tools? My oldest daughter giving advice to a friend, being a good chatter advisor to a friend. Nice. What's your most vivid memory of home? Okay, well, you know, we're going to be honest here. It's my, it was the house before this one and it was an emotional memory. It was the, um, the day before my wife and I were scheduled to leave for a trip and we smelt something odd and I opened the door to the basement and like the entire sewer of Ann Arbor just decided to explode in our basement. Very oh. vivid. Not no. pleasant. We, we we decided to leave the house. That's sorry. It's not warm and fuzzy, but oh. you know that's perfect though. Well, I was great just, time to take a vacation. I was just yeah. going to ask what smell reminds you of home. So maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a the current house is a different smell. I will say. <laughs> All right, last question. We uh, we have what are three things on your bedside table? This is a point of contention in, in my relationship now. I've got like seven <laughs> glasses of water. That's one thing, but it's because I, I take it before bed each night and I don't always bring it back. Um, so, so I've got that. Um, I have a stack of books and um, lots of different um, charging cables for my different devices. Well, with all your glasses of water, you can start playing music, you know, yeah. if they're all oh, at different levels. I mean, it, it, it could be a, a, a multi-person band with the yeah, number exactly. of glasses I have up there. So, <laughs> and, and, and also just thank you for having me on. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. It's been a fun conversation. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much. So, all right. 
Linda, what am I thinking? Are you asking me to read your internal chatter? Yes. Your... What might it be saying right now? Um, you want chips? So probably. close. I, it's to do, do with you want food. Chocolate. Grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> no, I. It's really fascinating though because I feel that I'm someone who I don't beat myself up a lot on the inside, but I push mm-hmm. myself a lot, and I think that's my internal chatter is always sort of it, maybe over the years I've been able to um, make sure that it's coaching, it's encouraging me in a, in a positive way, mm. and then it helps drive me. So it's, I'm so fascinated. Everything Ethan said has made me want to read more and learn more about it. And and to take the time to practice the tools that we've learned. So of the things that he's talked about in this conversation and in his book, I love when he talks about like creating a sense of awe. Mm-hmm. Because I think when we put ourselves like at the center of every, like front and center of everything, our problems can seem so big. Yeah, well, it's shrinking of oneself. And so when you look at how vast this world is and the universe and the galaxies and everything, we are this <laughs> tiny little insignificant pea in the pod. Not to say that, you know, our, no. like our problems aren't valid. Of course. Um, but it is easy to like just think that way. Like, you know, get into a negative cycle. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't speak right now. No, <laughs> your brain's working overtime. But I, I know what you mean. I mean, it's, we are all important people on this planet, but we're all just small specks of this planet. And the other tool that I loved and it made a lot of sense was speaking to yourself in third person. I think you and I do it naturally. Drew does this all the time. <laughs> wait, wait, what are you Actually, you know what? I'm like talking to yourself in third person. I do notice that I do it, but often in negative speak. So like, oh, you're so, you're not creative enough or like you're not um, doing enough. Like you shouldn't do that, Linda. Like don't be lazy, blah, blah, blah. But like I can turn that around Mm -hmm. and use that third person speak in a very positive way. And I love that because you're basically building up your own encouragement within your own head. And and then also the idea of having a board of advisors, people that we can talk to for specific events or issues. You're you're part of my advisory book book board. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm, I'm the chair of your board. Yes, I sit on you. Uh, Wait. <laughs> TMI. Anyway, you can learn more about Ethan's lab at ethancross.com. That's cross, K-R-O-S-S. Check out all his research and his workshops. And there's also a fun quiz you can do on there. How well do you know your inner voice? Do the quiz. It's definitely worth it. And a huge thank you to our homies, Brandon Angelino, Annalie Bell, Hannah Fan, Courtney Iwanis, Wes Friend, Chris Cobain, Jessica Bryant-Harvey, and Nicole Schachter. Our theme music for At Home is by Victoria Shaw and Chad Carlson. And music is composed and produced by Rick Russo. Thank you so much for listening. And if you do enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us. Always rate us. We love you rating and commenting. Yeah, we actually like your feedback. And to you, thank you. Thank you, love you. Love you.